Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Kind of Detrimental Podcast. This is your co-host, Dan Worley, partner of Siebert Worley in Nashville. I'm joined, as always, by my other co-host, Dan Wallach. Dan, what's happening? Um, no, just living the dream here in uh, South Florida. So, um, you know, anyway, um, I'm uh, looking forward to this podcast. We have a lot going on this week. Uh, we've taken maybe, I don't know if we're taking two weeks off, but it just seems if you miss a few days, um, that stories are just flying fast and furious. And, yeah. and the best example of that is what's going on this week. So I wanted to tee it up. Yeah, well, I think it's an incredible time in sports law, I think. I mean, I can't think of a time where there was more issues going on nationally, you know, throughout college sports, throughout professional sports. Um, you know, we've hit on sports betting a lot. That case is coming soon in the U.S. Supreme Court. But, you know, I think specifically, um, and I don't think we'll get into this too much, but the national anthem talk and, and how each team reacted this past week and, of course, the president's tweets. And, um, you know, earlier today we saw the Broncos put out a statement that they're all going to stand. And it's just very fascinating to me that all playing out. But I think the one bit that we wanted to, to start off with and, We'll also get to um, the Ezekiel Elliott lawsuit uh, update a little later on in the podcast. But I think what we wanted to start off with and, and, and touch maybe more on a high level um, and, and just try to talk about some of the broader impact, potential impacts of this case. But the college sports bribery case, there were you know a bunch of arrests made this week. The FBI uh, did an investigation and there's uh, 10 schools implicated, or excuse me, 10, 10 people uh, it looks like at least seven schools. We had four assistant coaches arrested, a few other people. Um, pretty, pretty wild story. Huh, Dan? Yeah, I mean, and we haven't even uh, you know scratched the surface on this yet. We've barely gotten into one or two days, and uh, you know there have been a number of schools implicated. But my favorite quote from one of the United States Attorney in the Southern District is, "We've got your playbook. Uh, you better come talk to us." before we go find you. And I would suspect that this is going to uh, multiply in, in fairly short order, not only by school across the country, but I, I think by sport. Uh, yeah, yeah, college basketball has its own unique relationships, and, uh, but, but, I, but I think you know, college football will ultimately find itself or could find itself under the microscope in this, uh, you know, far-reaching investigation. I, I think uh, this, this, these comments from the acting United States Attorney in the Southern District really are uh, going to be prescient, and we're going to see this, uh, the scope of this, uh, multiply pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think, and we'll get into a few of the specific examples, but I, I think one way it's going to multiply quickly is, you know, we have. Uh, you know, people arrested, people facing criminal charges. This isn't an NCAA investigation at this point where, you know, maybe the school, maybe they're uh, get a slap on the wrist like we saw with, with Patino last year in the, in the escort scandal where he got uh, suspended a few games. This is people going to jail for what they're doing. And it's a big deal. And, and, and that means that they could be cutting deals with the government um, and agreeing to either provide more information or, or testify against other witnesses. And so uh, I think through that process, we're going to see this thing really expand. And especially when you kind of take into consideration that it's not necessarily just these individual schools involved, but it's a shoe company, at least one shoe company at this point, Adidas. And Adidas could be doing this on a far broader scale. 
Yeah, that, 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 that's a great point. But I'm, I'm, I'm wondering whether culpability should stop at the doors of the coaches and the individuals involved. What about the institutional culpability? I mean, in one sense, the universities are being portrayed or things that are being victimized. Well, I think the true victims are the, are the student athletes. Uh, but but uh, so the schools themselves pay a steep price through uh, you know, NCAA you know, type sanctions as well as criminal penalties. Uh, I mean, the NCAA ends up looking pretty um, ineffective and ineffectual here that activity, which everybody knows is the way uh, this business is run, right. is operated with basically impunity uh, for so many decades. And the NCAA is, has been powerless or, or you know, gutless to do anything about this because they, quote unquote, lack the subpoena power. Well, there are other ways to compel um, this kind of information, and obviously, it's left to Preet Bharara's, you know, former office, to do the heavy lifting on any kind of you know major investigation and you know criminal investigation in the world of you know sports or gambling. That's the office that broke open, you know, with you know the illegal world of online poker. With I don't know if it was Black Monday or Black Friday, but that office is famous for bringing some of the uh, most important far-reaching criminal investigations, at least as I've seen in the gambling industry. And now uh, this is going to be the, you know, probably the most serious, uh, you know, institutional sports prosecution of my life. Yeah. I, I mean, on one hand, I, I somewhat agree with you. On the other hand, it's, um, it, it, you know, when I did take, sit down and take a look at some of the documents and how, the FBI actually went about this investigation. It's hard to imagine at least how the NCAA's enforcement team is set up that they would have had the ability to do this, right? I mean, you saw things like wiretaps, um, undercover witnesses, undercover officers. I mean, it was a pretty elaborate thing that I, I think is yeah. probably outside of the NCAA's capability. But th- that being said, that, that like you said, that, it's that, not that, the only way to do it. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I mean, it was the, co- it was the cooperating witnesses, a witness in this case, that really, uh, you know, kind of kind of broke the dam and 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 laid, laid everything bare for the United States Attorney's Office to go after. And you then see the delay internal investigation without that kind of threat of you know criminal penalties um there, there would be a lack of incentive or motivation for somebody to be a yeah. cooperating witness unless it was to save his own you know skin like one coach would be turning uh you know evidence on, on another coach or another school but here one of the cooperating witnesses i forget his name melvin something or other faced uh you know significant uh, uh penalties from the uh, criminal penalties for having uh uh, stolen money from athletes to finance his his his, his movie ventures. Uh, so the U.S. Attorney's Office and, and, and federal criminal uh, law enforcement authorities have a different set of tools at their disposal than the NCAA would. Yeah, and uh, I agree. And I think that moving forward, you know, I, I, it's pretty clear that the NCAA will get involved with this at some point. You know, I know. Uh, that the FBI apparently hadn't contacted the NCAA about, about all this until, um, you know, obviously it became public. And uh, there will certainly be an NCAA follow-up, and then those schools may be held accountable for uh, the various coaches' actions. Uh, I, I think that falls clearly underneath the NCAA bylaws. So, uh, you know, those are possibilities. But again, you know, it, but for what, what the FBI did here – you just don't see the NCAA uncovering this, which, um, you know, I, I think there's, there's tons of reasons for, um, 
can't really necessarily blame them on that. But at the same time, it, it's so systematic, systematic apparently, and there's all these other examples. And, and like you said earlier, this actually came as a surprise to no one that this stuff was going on. And that's, that's really kind of the deeper issue here is, is what's really wrong with uh, the NCAA model as it exists right now. And, you know, we were off air chatting about this, but I think that this particular incident may lead to some other changes uh, vis-a-vis, you know, existing lawsuits that are going on that attack the NCAA model. And particularly, you know, Jeffrey Kessler's lawsuit, who uh, is attacking the NCAA model, and it it seeks to introduce a free market where, uh, you know, if a player actually does have value in the free market, they will get paid that much by the school or potentially by sponsors. And uh, to me, if that were the case, these sorts of issues would be out in the open uh, and legal as opposed to behind closed doors and illegal. Yeah, I mean, it's the same argument with uh, with respect to legal sports that you put everything above board, transparent. Um, you, you wouldn't have the, um, you know, the, the threat of the same kind of threat of corruption or undue influence. Uh, it's it, it's conducting all this in the secret or in the underground, uh, which exposes, uh, which creates a temptation, uh, you know, to violate the law, and uh, really really does you know end up uh, victimizing uh, you know, victimizing people. So this is this is going to be right in Jeffrey Kessel's wheelhouse. I wouldn't I wouldn't go so far as to say it will uh, you know be a game changer in the in, in, in the in the in the so-called Kessler lawsuit, but this is certainly something that bolsters his argument about the uh, uh, hypocrisy of the NCAA's, you know, notion of amateurism. Right. Make it falls all, all over it. Yeah, I, I agree. And, um, you know, I, I think the question just kind of boils down to, and it's kind of an age-old question, is like, what do we want the NCAA to look like? Is it really this amateur organization where, um, you know, student-athletes are participating because they love the sport and, all of those good things as the NCAAs tried to perpetuate over the years, or really is this a money-making industry? Is this a business? Um, And I think that college sports, it's hard to argue that they're not a business at this point because they create a ton of revenue. There's a lot of interested shareholders, a lot of people making money off the business, but none of those, at least legally, are now the athletes. And so that kind of creates a lot of tension. And um, I think the greater impact of this uh, this case is going to be the pressure on these other uh, avenues to change the NCAA model, like we just discussed. Yeah, I mean, as Gordon Gecko uh, once said, you know, greed is good, uh, but in this case, you have um, a, a a system, a market system, which uh, exploits um, these the services of. Of, of, of the talent and the money is uh, is, is basically uh, you know going around and the university, the coaches, the is making money except for uh, the student athletes who have to resort to these measures. And it's not even their it's not even their scheme. It's the scheme of the coachings, the coaching staff, the alumni, the schools, the sponsors to create this uh, you know funneling of money through illicit channels. To provide the players something that they should have been getting or should be getting all along, which is some level of not only compensation but fair fair compensation commensurate with the value that they bring. I mean, to cap it at the cost of you know tuition and uh, or to set some arbitrary baseline figure of you know five thousand dollars, you know, which is the number uh, in, in the name of the U.S. case from O'Bannon. Uh, 
I think Kessler's I think Kessler's lawsuit may have some legs, and this could be the incident that really causes people uh, or call, you know, places the focus on that lawsuit as being the potential major force of change in college athletics. I mean, those of us on the inside who are sports law wonks know about this case, but I think the FBI, uh, you know, you know, the FBI, uh, you know, investigation and, and the indictments and the growing nature of this case, I think will make the Kessler lawsuit, um, you know, of, you know, kind of, will, will give it the kind of attention that it really hasn't been getting to date, but I think that will be the case that could really shift the landscape in college athletics. Yeah, or, again, another parallel to sports betting, what's going on. It could put pressure on the NCAA to act on their own volition to change the model before it's forced upon them by the courts. Uh, But I think another really interesting aspect of all this is really how this impacts the sneaker industry, particularly Adidas, who obviously is implicated in all of this um, and was the source of a lot of the funds and was funneling money through third parties to pay players, families, um, other individuals involved in the scheme, uh, and, and yeah. it's it's interesting because now I you know I think at least some people will look at Adidas and other schools that maybe have Adidas contracts and say hey are they shady with this school you know it just really yeah. brings down um, their credibility and uh, honestly I mean if you're a university and you're negotiating a shoe deal and you're negotiating with Nike, Adidas, are you really going to want to go with Adidas at this point, what that would look like for your school? Yeah, but you know what's going to happen here, which is what normally happens when one individual uh, gets implicated. The company throws them under the bus and tries to implicate them or, or tarnish them as sort of a lone wolf or somebody who acted on his own and without uh, any knowledge of any of his superiors or, or the company as a whole. Maybe, maybe the proof in this case uh, you know, indicates otherwise. But I would expect Adidas to quickly throw this individual under the bus to salvage its its goodwill and reputation, because otherwise the horribles that will befall Adidas will in fact happen. That you, you know that you just described. Um, so I would expect to see some of that. I mean, the schools and you just saw Patino do that in his public statement yesterday. That all those who who you know are responsible should be you know should pay the price. And of course, the editor of the statement, whether it's the university or the head coach, they never implicate themselves. It's always uh, you know pointing in, in, to, to anonymous others as you know really you know, really being you know behind the, uh, the the scheme. So no one wants to own up and accept responsibility. Although I, I do see you know Louisville. Uh, right away, you know, just you know, kind of, kind of took, uh, you know, took the hit and acknowledged that it was the subject of this investigation and took action uh, fairly quickly. So some schools will step up, but it is, but ultimately it's a matter of self-preservation because if they fight these things, uh, they'll, they'll end up uh, potentially paying a bigger price down the road uh, with 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 greater criminal penalties or you know, just as troubling, troubling uh, NCAA sanctions. But you know, I just found it very telling that. You know, Patino was all high and mighty yesterday, yeah. and he pays for it with the loss of his job less than one day later. But hey, maybe maybe he'll come back for the Knicks. I've always I've always been um, you know just uh, you know, so disappointed that you know he was a Knicks coach in the late '80s, did such a wonderful job, and then he had a falling out with the general manager Al Bianchi at the time, and the organization took years to recover. And I've been pining for Rick Patino ever since to come back to the Knicks. Well, I think he'll get a, a, a third, fourth, or fifth act. I don't necessarily believe his career as a legendary coach is at an end, but it sure looks that way today. 
Yeah, I was just going to ask you what you thought. And uh, that, that really is Patino's move these days. It's just say, I didn't know about it. I didn't know what was happening. It may have been wrong. It may have been, you know, someone else in the staff. But I, I sure didn't know about it. And, you know, that's what he did in the escorts uh, scandal. And that's what he uh, came out with immediately after that. And, of course, uh, Louisville apparently didn't really care about his opinion and, and immediately relieved him of, of his duties, which uh, was, you know, probably warranted yeah. at this well, point. But I, I wonder, well, Dan, if he's going to get uh, ex-Baylor head football coach Art Bryles' treatment where now he's just toxic, you know. He's clearly um, has this stuff aside, has the resume to yeah, be the, a college coach, but... Uh, well, well, you, you can't, equi- you can't uh, create an equivalency between, uh, you know, rape, sexual assault, no, and on the other hand, funneling, funneling money Let's face it, most of us believe athletes, college athletes, should receive some level of compensation. I think maybe he's toxic in the short term, or maybe for another Division I major college program, but ultimately, you know, he's in, he's in, a six year, he's in his mid, mid-60s. He's got another five to eight years left in his prime, and he's a winner, and he'll, he'll surface somewhere and win. He wasn't a cheater. He just did what everybody else in the business or what mainly the business did. And, uh, you know, I don't think this is going to stop with Patino. I think this is going to go beyond, you know, him and and snares so many other well-known, you know, programs and coaches. And after all is said and done, who's going to be, who's going to be coaching? Uh, you're going to need coaches. If this were just a, a Rick Patino issue and a, and a, and a uh, you know, something that was kind of engineered by him and only involved him. Yeah. It might be the death of his career, but um, he's just too good. And uh, everybody gets a second act. Well, maybe that Bryles doesn't get a second act, but just about everybody else yeah. does. And I think he would, depending on what we later come to learn, he might want a second chance. Right. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective, and I certainly wasn't trying to compare the underlying acts of those two cases, but I just thinking of how, um, how he's looked at, and I think with Patino, you have to keep in mind that this is not – uh, you know, the first time something like this has happened. He kind of showed over the last however many years that he, you know, doesn't run the cleanest program, whether that was his exact fault or not. As we talked about, uh, I think when you're talking to an AD of another major D1 school, they're not going to care. Um, but again, we've also seen, uh, like you said, let's wait and see what this comes out of this because there may be a lot more people implicated. And well, you know, the, second, I eliminate, yeah, sorry. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Go, well, I was go just going to say that, you know, and on top of that, winning cures all. So I wouldn't rule out a, a, another chance, but um, I, I certainly don't see it in the near future. Well, I mean, there, there are majors, and then there are mid-majors. And mid-majors want to become majors. And one way for a mid-major to become a major is to make a daring hire. And someone like Rick Pitino could transform a mid-major into a major. Uh, it could maybe a Florida Atlantic University. I mean, we're uh, focusing on you know maybe not the the, 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 the correct thing right now, but uh, you know I'm just I've just been such an admirer of, of Rick Pitino's uh, you know skills as a coach, his legendary career. I remember way back when he was UB Browns. He was on he was on UB Browns coaching staff in the '82-'83 season <laughs> when UB came to the Knicks. He brought I mean he 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 has been a turnaround artist. He's brought teams like Boston University. I think University of Hawaii, Providence, schools that have no business being on the basketball map 
and he's brought them into the NCAA tournament, and in Providence's case, uh, brought them to the Final Four. Uh, I believe it was the '86-'87 season, which led to his being hired by the Knicks. So I believe that there'll, there'll be some school out there that would be willing to give him a second chance. Maybe not this year, maybe not next year, but at some point, I don't think we've heard the last of Rick Pitino. Hey, Kindock Detrimental fans, we have some big news to report. We have our first actual sponsor for the podcast. And it's on a topic that's near and dear to our hearts, fantasy football. So if you love fantasy football, then you need to try our new favorite app, Draft. It's weekly fantasy football, but not like the other guys. On Draft, you draft real live snake drafts with other people, just like in your season-long league. Here's how it works. It's a draft that lasts for just one week and there's no management. Just set it and forget it. Once you're done drafting, that's it. No trades, no waiver wire. Draft even takes care of the last minute injuries for you. Drafts start every couple minutes so you can join one right now. And the best part? You can play for cold, hard cash. Drafts start at just $1 so there's a draft for everyone. No salary caps. Play in a real live snake draft just like you play with your friends in a season-long league. Come join us on Draft today. Download the app at any time. Just search Draft in your app store and join a game in minutes. Or play right from your computer at playdraft.com, whichever way you want. For a limited time only, all new players get a free entry into Draft when you make your first deposit. But you have to use our promo code, which is SPORTSLAW. That's right, kind of detrimental fans. Play in a real money game for free by just using the promo code SPORTSLAW on your first deposit of the draft. Just search Draft in the App Store or go to PlayDraft.com and come play with our free promo code SportsLaw, and we're back. Well, we? Yeah, let's just. Uh, I think that's probably a good point to just kind of transition into our next topic, which is uh, the Ezekiel Elliott lawsuit. We've, we've discussed that on this podcast uh, numerous times before, but we just kind of want to. Uh, there's an oral argument in the Fifth Circuit coming up on Monday. And we thought it'd be a good time to preview um, some of the things that's going on there. Dan, do you want to give us a little update on, on what the current status of that case is? Uh, yeah, on, on uh, Monday, well, let, me, let me back it up a little bit. In uh, the Eastern District of Texas, uh, Judge Amos Mazan had, had uh, issued a preliminary injunction uh, in favor of Ezekiel Elliott, finding that he would likely succeed on the merits of his lawsuit to overturn the arbitration ruling. Uh, uh, upholding the six-game suspension and that he would suffer irreparable harm if it were suspended. And uh, the NFL, in turn, moved to um, stay or you know, basically issue a stay of the preliminary injunction as a precursor to suspending Elliott right away, even while the appeal of the preliminary injunction was pending. So the NFL wanted to uh, impose the suspension right now while the case is being litigated. And uh, that that, that you know, ended up playing out before the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. And I've written and I've maintained that the NFL has no chance or shouldn't have much of a chance in succeeding uh, because Elliott can demonstrate irreparable harm, whereas the NFL cannot. And irreparable harm is one of the requirements that the league will need to show in connection with its motion for a stay pending appeal. It's the same requirements that govern the preliminary injunction. So how, how can the league possibly overcome that? Well, the league 
had a trump card, which is the jurisdiction argument. And the league argued that the, that the Eastern District of Texas court lacked any subject matter jurisdiction over the controversy because at the time the lawsuit in Texas was filed, uh, arbitrator Harold Henderson hadn't yet issued his arbitration award. And the law is well settled. Uh, the NFL's position is that the law is well settled, that um, the federal courts uh, lack the power to intervene in ongoing arbitration proceedings. And the earliest juncture at which the court can entertain a review of an arbitration is after the award has issued. So that is at the heart of the NFL's jurisdictional argument. And the Fifth Circuit issued an order late last week calling for additional briefing on the jurisdictional issue and setting it for oral argument on Monday, which is uh, four days from now, at which time the court will decide whether the case should stay in Texas or whether the the injunction should be uh, thrown out and the lawsuit thrown out, in which case the court, the, the, the controversy would then shift to the Southern District of New York with Wade has filed a parallel proceeding to confirm the same arbitration award. Sorry for the long wind up, but it's kind of hard to encapsulate all of that in yeah. anything yeah. less than like 30 minutes. <laughs> I, I think so, just to highlight some of the key points there, I mean, it, um, you know, based on how the Fifth Circuit's proceeding, I think. Um, one can glean that they sort of agree on the irreparable harm issue potentially. Um, and they really want to focus on yeah. the jurisdictional issue instead. And like you said, those are kind of separate issues. And really what the, what the PAs are arguing is that we understand that the general rule is that you need to exhaust all of your remedies at the lower level at the NFL arbitration process before you can move forward generally. But there's exceptions to that, and one of which is that if it's, uh, you know, essentially futile to do so because the violation has already occurred. And so some of their arguments were that uh, during the NFL's process, there was um, issues with the investigation, and that gave them immediate ripeness or standing or no need to exhaust their remedies at that point and establish jurisdiction at that point moving forward. So... um, to me, the uh, Fifth Circuit asking for oral argument, asking for additional briefing, really focused this appeal on that one issue, and it really is going to be the key issue moving forward in this case. Do you agree? Right, right, because yeah, I, I totally agree, uh, because irreparable harm alone would have been enough to deny the motion. So I think juris- subject matter jurisdiction goes to everything. It doesn't matter if... if if the, if the NFL can't satisfy the other requirements for a stay, but they can show that the court lacks the power to hear the case, well, doesn't that trump everything? It does. It no longer becomes, uh, you know, a, an analysis of a four-part test. Uh, the case becomes dead on arrival. If the Texas court lacks subject matter jurisdiction to hear the case, the Fifth Circuit uh, can 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 dive in right away in order the case to be dismissed without having to wait for the full appeal on the merits of the preliminary injunction or even the full appeal following the vacator of the arbitration award. Subject matter jurisdiction is a, is a, is a defect that can be raised by the parties or by the court at any time and at any time encompasses this particular hearing. And if the court, uh, if the Fifth Circuit believes that there is a jurisdictional obstacle or any defect, it will remand the case to Judge uh, Mazant with instructions to dismiss it. 
and uh, based upon the court setting an oral argument on a motion of all things, literally, in my entire 20 years of appellate practice, I have never known, in, and I've handled more than 100 appeals, never had a motion set for oral argument in an appeals court. Uh, the fact that it's that unprecedented and that there was such a clear disparity on the irreparable harm issue suggests that the Fifth Circuit has some real concerns about the justiciability of the NFLPA's lawsuit and filing when it is pre-award. Yeah, and, and to kind of crystallize why this particular issue is so important, right? So let's just take a look at the two paths. So the first path is, let's say that the PA is able to convince them that they had jurisdiction, and assuming that they also went on the, the irreparable harm issue and all the other factors that go into the preliminary injunction, which seems like they have a good chance at, the case will be, or the appeal will be lost, essentially. The, the lower case will proceed, and the judge, Judge Mazant, has already indicated that he thinks that the PA has a likelihood of success to win that case. So often running in the right direction for the PA, um, they would at least look good there. It would have to be, the final disposition would have to be appealed, presumably, and move forward. However, as you just described the process, if the NFL wins this, um, the case would be remanded, dismissed, and now we move over to New York and basically start over. The NFL has a placeholder lawsuit filed in the Southern District of New York, uh, where we saw Tom Brady's case, and other NFL litigation in the past, where they're headquartered. Um, and we really just don't have an idea of how things would proceed in that course of a new judge. Uh, we have to relitigate some of these underlying issues. So uh, it'll really change the dynamics of the entire lawsuit moving forward. Yeah, yeah personally, um, I think the NFL's ploy to get this, I mean, it's a good jurisdictional argument, don't get me wrong, but there's jurisdiction somewhere, right? right? The, the NFL today certainly has at this time, now, today, as an avenue of judicial review. And it's not a question of, well, the, the, the jump the gun and they don't get any judicial review. This is just engineered to shift the case over to New York where the union would have another opportunity uh, to go through the same arguments, the same motions, the same hearings that already occurred in Texas. I don't see the, I don't see the prejudice to the NFL other than that they didn't get their way. I mean, after all, the plaintiff does get to choose the forum and typically, in a review of an arbitration award, uh, I wouldn't say statistically, but more often than not, it's the aggrieved party that wants to challenge. If there, you know, quite often there's a motion to confirm right. the arbitration right. award, but in this case, I think the NFLPA stands in the shoes as a traditional plaintiff and should have its choice of form, and the choice of form would either be uh, you know, where the locus of events occurred or where the, where the parties are located or where the arbitration occurred. I believe under, that, under federal arbitration, you know, case, FAA case law, generally it's where the arbitration occurred, but that is not a hard and fast law. And, and, and I, I think this is not a jurisdictional battle as much as it is, as it is a, a venue battle. And uh, I think if the court takes a step back, it would understand that the um, that, that Judge Mazant did not interfere with ongoing arbitration proceedings. His ruling on the preliminary injunction occurred well after an award was issued. It was only the filing of the lawsuit that predated the award. And when, when you think about all the work that has already taken place in, in the Eastern District of Texas, uh, thousands of pages of briefs and exhibits, uh, uh, an oral argument lasting several hours, 
several decisions on a preliminary injunction and a stay issue. And, and to start that process all over again in what seemed to be an utter um, waste of judicial resources and, and it frustrate judicial economy. So I believe that if the court wanted to take a practical approach to this, what the court would be could be thinking would be well the union's going to have its day in court no matter what and that and, and it's and, and it, the, the case is right right now but we the union is standing right now and the union has exhausted all of its remedies right now so this is, is this about having jurisdiction at all or is it really a question of which venue is the right one and uh, I, I think since there's going to be a, a litigation and there's going to be some federal court with them, you know, I think it makes the most sense to leave it exactly where it is. Um, and, you know, so I think there are competing considerations. On the law, I think maybe the NFL does have the better of the arguments. Mm-hmm. But if you look beyond the law and just look at judicial economy and look at what would be, you know, kind of the most efficient use of resources without frustrating jurisdictional principles, I say leave it where it is. Yeah, I think you're correct in saying, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with your ultimate conclusion, but uh, both sides have compelling arguments. And I think the big one for the NFL is, I mean, what kind of precedent does this set that someone can just jump the gun like this and get to get to litigate the lawsuit where they want to? I, I see where the NFL is coming on, on that point for sure. And, um, yeah, but, 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 but it's their own doing because uh, a couple of years, several years ago in the fight game, the NFL manipulated or, or controlled the timing of the release of uh, Roger Goodell's arbitration award in the Brady case, and then ran to federal court in the Southern District of New York simultaneously before the before the NFL Players Association had any idea what hit them. So the reason why the PA had to file pre-award was to safeguard or or, or you know, guard against the NFL pulling the same gambit. Uh, that they did in Deflategate and repeating it in Elliott, because even though Harold Henderson is sort of the, you know, not the NFL, he's really the designate of Roger Goodell and has such a close affiliation with the league that I don't think he could have necessarily been blindly trusted by the Players Association not to tip off the NFL. Uh, If if the union had waited, they would have lost the courthouse race. But at the same time, I mean, I, you know, this kind of goes deeper down the wormhole of the NFL-CBA. And, uh, it, on one hand, that's a valid argument. On the other hand, the players negotiated this agreement. And in the agreement, it says that Roger Goodell can be the arbitrator on these hearings. Clearly, that's clear in the CBA. And what comes of that is he's the head of the NFL. He knows when he's going to release his ruling. And it gives them a tactical advantage to be able to file in the venue of their choice on time. So, but I think that know. provides an unfair tactic. But I, I think that tactical advantage is unfair. While while the union did acquiesce to this particular system of arbitration and and this particular um, mechanism to have the now um, handle both the initial discipline as well as the appeal, uh, I get that 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 was that was subtly bargained for. But what was not bargained for was. Uh, you know, the manipulation of sure. the timing of when decisions get released and, and, and the place. If the NFL believed it was so important to litigate in the Southern District of New York, it could have, it could have bargained for that. 
in the collective bargaining agreement that the site of any federal lawsuit challenging a, a, an arbitration award shall be in the location of where the arbitration is held or the Southern District of New York. So the, the NFL is equally at fault for not, uh, you know, for, for not negotiating that. And what it failed to accomplish in negotiation um, accomplish by taking unfair advantage of certain knowledge that the arbitrator possesses, but that the adversary does not. And, and uh, you know, I, I don't believe that the NFLPA bargained for uh, you know the, the NFL's preferred choice of venue. That's not anywhere in there. Sure. Yeah, it's not. Um, but yeah, I mean, we could talk about this all day. And, and, and oh, it's fascinating. I love talking about it. I mean, you know, with well, the language, it's a fascinating point. Language. Yeah, I mean, it's a consequence of the language, and it, it may be one that at the time was hard to. Uh, foresee, uh, but yeah. it, it is something that goes along with allowing the head of an organization to act as the arbiter, final arbiter of an mm-hmm. appeal. You have to kind of understand the company ties that go along with that, and then the litigation that goes along with that too. And frankly, I don't think it, you know the time the last CBA was drafted, there was probably as much concern with all this venue fighting. I don't recall mm-hmm. that being from earlier, but um, anyway, it should be an exciting. Uh, another exciting week of Ezekiel Elliott and, and I'm sure with this NCAA thing that we, we chatted about is going to blow up even more. And, um, we'll, uh, we'll have Sunday to look at what, what the players do during the national anthem. So another fun week of sports law ahead, Dan, uh, anything else that you wanted to mention before we go? No, other than recommending that we start doing this daily, <laughs> we can't, we can't, we can't, uh, keep up. I know we revisit a lot of the same cases over and over again, sometimes because, the Elliott case really is beginning to capture, you know, it's a national story. It, you know, anytime you're talking about the NFL, uh, it, it raises much greater awareness than if we're talking about, you know, the NBA, hockey, baseball, or sports gambling. So, uh, you know, I know, I know our audience uh, would would really like to, you know, dive into Ezekiel Elliott just as we would because it's in the headlines and it's probably the most. Um, interesting you know game of chess moves that i'm that i'm observing right now in you know in, in the whole field of sports law you're, you're talking about two of the brightest strategists yep. in the country jeffrey kessler and paul uh, you know clement two sides not kessler and clement but two sides absolutely can't stand each other basically jockeying uh, for the upper hand in federal court litigation through parallel lawsuits and you know, emergency motions. I mean, this is this is about as exciting as it gets in in the field of sports law commentary. So we got to keep going back to the well again and again until the case begins to quiet, and that won't happen for at least some weeks. Yeah, and and one one related point, um, and I know we have many lawyer listeners that may be interested in attending, but uh, there's an ABA sports conference in Las Vegas, which Dan and I both spoke at last year. I'll be back there again. Uh, it's next Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And on Saturday, we have a uh, one-on-one interview with Jeffrey Kessler, Ezekiel Elliott's attorney. Oh, wow. And uh, he's being interviewed by Ebony Williams, who's a, a Fox News uh, host and reporter who's also a lawyer. And we're actually uh, working on live streaming that over Twitter. Um, so not only if you're at the conference, but anywhere you are um, on Saturday, uh, mid to late morning, um, I'll probably have it on my Twitter account as well as the um, ABA Entertainment and Sports account. So uh, I'll make sure to dis- disperse that information. But it should be a really interesting interview, and we should get some insight into uh, th- these cases and, and, and more. 
because uh, he's really involved in, in quite a few, and it should be uh, it should be a fun one. So, all right, Dan. Well, uh, I think that's it for today. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Um, let us know any feedback that you have. Good ratings on iTunes only. Uh, and thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody.